0: Well, this morning we have the privilege of beginning a six-part study in the uh, Apostle Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Paul's letter on page 989. 989. Having uh, read this letter uh, and Paul's first letter to the um, to the Thessalonians. In, in their entirety this past week, a couple of times, I uh, just personally, I continue to be encouraged and challenged by Paul's affection for these believers in Thessalonica. He loves these people to whom he is writing. He cares deeply about them, as every pastor and teacher of God's word should. I was also encouraged by the strong and enduring faith of the church in Thessalonica. And as we'll we'll think about in a little while, this this church, it it faced much affliction. It faced suffering and and persecution. Uh, And and yet they stood strong in Christ. The church in in Thessalonica, uh, however, was not perfect. Uh, They they did have their struggles. And that's part of the reason that Paul wrote the first letter to them. It's also uh, the reason that Paul wrote to them a second time. They continue to face challenges and have struggles. The fact that there are actually two letters that addresses ongoing challenges in Thessalonica is instructive, isn't it? Christians never stop facing challenges on earth. And the same is true for for us as a church. We will always have our challenges. But just like our brothers and sisters in Christ who who lived in Thessalonica in the first century, we will always have our God. While God has been pleased to to grant us much grace, uh, we're not a perfect church. And I have no doubt that we can learn from the strengths and the struggles of the church in Thessalonica. So I pray that God will be pleased to bless our study. And let's go ahead and begin our study. I want to begin by reading the first four verses of 2 Thessalonians. So re- read first 2nd th- uh, Thessalonians, forgive me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've read 1 Thessalonians, then you may have noticed that 2 Thessalonians opens in almost the exact same way as 1 Thessalonians opens. And I don't think we should view the author, Paul, as an uncreative robot. Letters, really, in the first century followed a very common pattern. And 1 and 2 Thessalonians are no different. What is more, in repeating himself, we should understand that the author of 2 Thessalonians wants to reinforce in the minds of his readers, the same truths that he taught them in 1 Thessalonians. As we're going to see throughout the course of this short letter, the truths that the church in Thessalonica needed to hold on to in order to overcome their challenges are not all that different from the truths that were communicated to them in the first letter. In the first letter, the Thessalonians, uh, Paul was Expressing to them that they were they were concerned about the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is to say that they were concerned about His return to gather His people to Himself and judge the world. So Paul wrote to them about that subject. He instructed them on it and reminded them how they were to live until Jesus returned. In in Second Thessalonians, Paul actually elaborates. Further on that subject because apparently some false teaching had unsettled the church. Some teachers had been suggesting that Jesus had already returned. Paul essentially tells the congregation in this letter. No, no, no. Jesus has not returned and here's why. And then he goes on to give several reasons for that. And after that he says, now remember what I taught you when I was with you and live in light of it. That's basically the message of Paul's letter. Jesus has not returned. Here are a few reasons why. This is what I taught you. Now live in light of it. While at one level we could simply summarize the message of these first four verses as, hello, um, at another level, the first four verses actually lay the foundation of Paul's letter, the, the message of perseverance until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I'd like to study these first four verses through the, the framework of, of two simple questions. And this sermon is really kind of introductory in many ways to the, to the letter as a whole. But here's how I want us to kind of approach these four verses. Just two questions. Who's this letter from? Who is this letter from? And second, who is this letter to? Who's this letter from? And who is this letter to? Let's begin with our first question. Who is this letter from? The answer is right there in verse one. You see Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Who who are Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy? Who are these men? If you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, you may recognize Paul and Timothy right off the bat, but who is Silvanus? Silvanus is simply another name for Silas. Uh, Paul appears to have called him Silvanus, and Luke, uh, in the book of Acts, appears to call him Silas. These three men, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, are fellow gospel workers and partners in ministry. Luke chronicles their journeys and ministry together uh, in Acts chapter 15 through chapter 20. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, we're told that these three brothers in Christ preach the gospel together in, to the church in Corinth. These are men who spend their lives spreading the name of Jesus Christ. They work together in this mission. But there's one who has some seniority among them, and that's Paul. So let's think about Paul. Paul, uh, he, he has a remarkable story. He first appears in the New Testament under the name Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Though he was wicked, he was uh, something of an early Renaissance man. The, the, the picture that we're given of, of him uh, from the beginning is that he's, he's young, perhaps only 20 That he's zealous, that he's well-educated, he's a rabbi, specifically a a Pharisee, and he's a tent maker. He seems to have happily participated in the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, even going from house to house, ravaging the church and dragging men and women off and committing them to prison. We're told in Acts chapter 9 verse 1, that, he was, that while he was still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord Jesus, he actually received special permission from the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to leave Jerusalem, to capture Christians, and to bring them back to Jerusalem bound. Something remarkable took place between Paul's zealous persecution of the church and, and the loving letters that we read in First and 2 Thessalonians. We should read about what happens to Paul. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Acts chapter 9 on page uh, 917. I want us to read what the Lord did in in Paul's life, Saul's life. Uh, Acts chapter 9. I want to read verses 1 to 6. Again, that's page 917 of the Bibles provided. Here's what Luke writes. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. From here, Saul's life was forever changed. Instead of going by Saul, he eventually started going by Paul. And after this, instead of persecuting the church, he started preaching to the church. He even started preaching in places that had no church, such as Thessalonica. So flip forward in Acts to Acts chapter 17. Fast forward to Acts chapter 17. That's uh, page 926 of the Bibles provided. In the course of his life, Paul, he went on three missionary journeys. He was basically running around to every place that he could, preaching about Jesus, about how Jesus died and rose again, and especially about how Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures. By God's grace, he had a, a fruitful and productive ministry. He saw a number of churches planted and established. But sometimes he met opposition in the course of his ministry. He specifically met some opposition in Thessalonica. Paul arrived in Thessalonica in the middle of his second missionary journey. And this is what happened. Begin reading in verse 1 of Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. We'll read to verse 14. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom... And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous And the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Maria also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Now hopefully you can see from this this account in Acts chapter 17 why Paul would want to write to the Thessalonian congregation. God started that church through Paul, as verse 4 of Acts 17 makes clear. But, But so much hostility arose that Paul was forced to leave. The Jews from Thessalonica even followed Paul around, trying to get him thrown out of other places as well. There are some... Mean people back in Thessalonica. And Paul wanted to make sure that the church that he left there was still flourishing. Paul's love for God and for the church motivated him to write 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Paul uh, likely wrote his first letter to the church sometime between 49 and 51 AD. And uh, not long after he was thrust out of the city, as we read about. And his second letter, the one that we're studying together, was probably written not long after the first, perhaps sometime between 50 and 51 AD. So go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. That's page 989 of the Bibles provided, 2 Thessalonians. As I've been hinting at, Paul is, is uh, most likely the main author of this letter. Uh, while the letter does open with a combined greeting and prayer, we greet you and we give thanks by the time you get to the middle of chapter 2, Paul starts interjecting himself into the letter from time to time, saying, I, we see that in chapter 2, verse 5. If you were to flip over a page or two to the end of this letter, uh, you will see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says this, "Paul, uh, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness of every letter of mine. It is the way I write. This clue, it tips us off to the possibility that Silas or Silvanus or Timothy were perhaps scribes who helped physically kind of write out this letter for Paul, except for that final greeting, which Paul wrote in his own hand. Now, before we go on to kind of consider the other names of the men who appear here, we have to pause and reflect on the wonderful power of God in bringing Paul to himself and using him for his glory. (coughs) You know, sometimes we're tempted to think that a a certain family member or friend or or even an enemy is beyond the reach of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, we must take a lesson from Paul's life. No one is beyond the reach of God. We ought not to give up on anyone. Rather, we ought to lovingly pursue everyone. Children. Youth, young adults. I especially want to encourage you to take encouragement from God's work in Paul's life. I wonder if you ever feel or think that you're the worst sinner, that you're the chief of sinners. Did you know who else thought that? Paul. Paul thought that about himself. That's what he said about himself in First Timothy chapter one verse fifteen. That is who God saves. He saves the worst. So, so run right to Him and ask Him to save you. Ask your parents or a mature Christian friend tonight or, or later this afternoon about how they've seen God powerfully work in their lives and in the lives of others. A- ask your parents or, or a friend to share with you the story of how God powerfully saved them or a friend or a family member they knew. That would be a great way to spend uh, this afternoon or this evening rejoicing in God's power to save and remembering who he has saved. Do you know who else believed in God's power to save? Sylvanus. That's why he joined Paul in the work of preaching the power of the gospel. Sylvanus, in his later years, according to 1 Peter 5, verse 12, was a faithful brother who also served as uh, Peter's amanuensis, or his scribe. Um, As I mentioned earlier, Silvanus was also known as as Silas. Uh, At least that's how Luke referred to him in Acts. In his early years, he was the leader of the young church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, verse 22, we're told that he was chosen by the leaders of the church of Jerusalem to accompany Paul and Barnabas to Antioch to deliver a letter of encouragement in the faith. A little, little later in that chapter, in Acts 15, we're told that Silvanus was also a prophet. Which means that he not only uh, delivered a letter of encouragement to the congregation at Antioch, but that he also powerfully proclaimed, he spoke and preached uh, God's word of encouragement in the faith too. Silvanus's so partnership in ministry with Paul was extended when Paul began his, his second missionary journey. Paul... Uh, he, as you may know, he was often in trouble. He was often in prison and beaten. And it seems that Sylvanus actually shared in some of that with Paul. Uh, Sylvanus was imprisoned with Paul in Philippi when Paul was uh, when Paul cast out an evil spirit of a, of a slave girl uh, that apparently angered her owners, those who were oppressing her. And Luke tells us that he was beaten along with Paul, having been afflicted with many blows. You would think that this would be a discouraging time for these two missionaries and church planters. But that night, they started praying and singing hymns in their prison cell. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And a prison guard at that time, he was about to commit suicide when Paul and Silvanus ministered to him, and ultimately he and his whole household came to faith. His partnership in the gospel in Philippi, uh, the Lord seems to have used to establish a church there, and from, Pil- from Philippi, Sylvanus moved on with Paul to establish the church in Thessalonica. Sylvanus, uh, no doubt, joined with Paul in expressing his sincere love for the congregation in Thessalonica. In, in reflecting on Sylvanus' life and ministry, two things stand out to me uh, about this man. First, he was, a, he was a partner with Paul. And that meant suffering right alongside him. And that's instructive, isn't it, that, uh, that Paul never went at, kind of went out alone. Uh, he had a partner, several partners often in ministry. Uh, anyone who's been in pastoral ministry for, for any length of time will tell you how important it is to have friends in the ministry. And this is true. But it is also true for those who are not in pastoral ministry. Every believer is called to be a servant of Christ. And and we need to have fellow servants right alongside us us to to serve and suffer with us as we labor for God's glory. So Christian, uh, give yourself to serving the body and, and invite others to serve alongside you. Don't serve alone. Serve with others. There's another thing about Sylvanus's life and ministry that stands out to me. And that is this. Sylvanus knew the importance and the power of words. Sylvanus seems to have served both Paul and Peter in helping them put their thoughts down on paper, on parchments. And we're beneficiaries of his service. He also preached and spoke as a servant of God when the occasion called for it. Who knows how the Lord will be pleased to use our small acts of service? Who knows how the Lord will be pleased to use our speech? Sylvanus humbly met the needs of those uh, with whom he was serving with. And both the the minister and the recipients of their ministry benefited from his humble service. Like Sylvanus, Timothy was a humble man too. And he was not an unknown figure to the Thessalonian congregation. By the time this letter arrives, we know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, that Timothy was commissioned by Paul to go and find out how the congregation was doing. Uh, find out how um, that congregation that, that Paul and Silvanus has established. He wanted Paul wanted to know particularly, how are these brothers and sisters doing? So he, he sent Timothy. Uh, Timothy spent enough time with the congregation to discern that they were persevering in the faith and in brotherly love. Paul also sent Timothy on uh, special trips to, to Corinth and Philippi. I think that this speaks well of Timothy's spiritual maturity and discernment as a young man. He seems to have come to faith in large part due to the faithful witness of his mother and grandmother. Timothy uh, may have been known to the Thessalonians before the trip mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 3 because he is said to join Paul and Silas previous to their trip to Thessalonica. He's strangely not mentioned in that Acts 17 account concerning Thessalonica, but perhaps uh, that is in part because he tends to be a humble young man uh, who kind of remains in the background, faithfully laboring until commissioned for more public work. We know that by the time Paul's life is coming to a close, Timothy had become the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Uh, Paul considered Timothy a son in the faith, and he deeply desired that Timothy carry on the work of promoting sound doctrine and holy living. It's in large part what First and Second Timothy are about. Mothers and grandmothers, those of you here this morning, uh, do take heart from what the Lord is pleased to do through Timothy's mother and grandmother. Because of them, he knew the Scriptures, and the Lord was pleased to bring Timothy to faith and use him to advance his kingdom. History is, is riddled with examples of how the Lord used mothers in the lives of their children, Uh, Augustine's mother, Monica, prayed so fervently uh, for her son that at one point a priest asked her to leave him alone, saying that that a child of these tears and prayers could not be lost. Um, Mothers, don't grow weary of doing good. Keep sharing the gospel, the good news with your children. Keep praying for them, teaching them. You know, even if the Lord has not given you children yet, be sure to invest your, uh, yourself in prayer for the children around you, for the children of this church, uh, for the children the Lord may give you one day. Uh, practice sharing the good news about Jesus with little ones. It'll help you share the gospel with big ones too. Um, we as a congregation would be wise to pray for uh, many Timothys that the Lord would raise up Many Timothys from our congregation. We have uh, so many boys in this church. Uh, and we ought to pray that the Lord would be pleased to bring them to faith and make them those who proclaim God's Word. Just like this Timothy did. The Lord, He, he has clearly done a wonderful work in the lives of these men. In the lives of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. He's also done a wonderful work in in the life of the Thessalonian congregation uh, to whom this letter is addressed. So let's think about our second question now. Who, who is this letter to? Who is this church in Thessalonica? Well, let's just read verses 1 through 4 again. Uh, read 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. We can um, safely assume that this congregation is composed of both Jews and Gentiles. We know that from the Acts uh, 17 account that we read from earlier, that Paul went into the synagogue three weeks in a row on the Sabbath, endeavoring to reason, explain, and prove from the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. Some of the Jews, uh, we read, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silvanus, Luke said in Acts chapter 17, verse 4. Luke also said in that same verse that a great many devout Greeks also believed, along with a number of the leading women of the city. This was a mixed congregation in terms of ethnicity and gender and socioeconomic status. It was a small glimpse of what heaven will be like when men and women from every tongue and tribe and nation will be gathered around the throne of Christ. And it is what we as a congregation ought to pray that our church looks like in increasing Measure. We as a local church want to be an embassy of heaven declaring to the world where our citizenship is. Now we've kind of gotten ahead of ourselves by describing the, the composition of the church in Thessalonica, but we must ask a more fundamental question. What is a church? What, what is a church? Paul calls this group of people in Thessalonica a church. But what is that? Um, how would you answer that question? If someone asked you, what would you say if someone said, so, so what is a church? Uh, we, I think, are, are increasingly living in a society that doesn't understand exactly what is it what a church is. So, so let's think about this. The word church here is ekklesia, which simply means an assembly. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, this word church is used to describe the people of Israel when they gathered or when they assembled together to worship God. So most simply... And fundamentally a church is a gathering of believers who rightly worship God now the writers of the New Testament have gone to great lengths to describe how churches come into being Uh, Paul tells us for example in Romans chapter 10 verse 17 that faith comes by hearing the word preached people come to faith in Christ by hearing Christ centered preaching and teaching which is what Paul did in Thessalonica and then when people hear this they begin to identify with Christ in baptism. That is where they publicly profess that Jesus lived and died and was raised from the grave for their sins. Furthermore, baptism is where they display that Jesus is their Lord by obeying His commands to be baptized. Uh, The book of Acts also portrays baptized believers as celebrating the Lord's Supper together. In the supper, they proclaimed that they believed that Jesus lived and died and was raised from the grave. This is what a church is. It is an identifiable group of sinners gathered by the right preaching of God's Word who celebrate the ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Let's think a little more specifically about this particular church in Thessalonica now. We've considered the church's physical makeup from the book of Acts, Uh, But Paul's letters, both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, tell us something of the spiritual makeup of this congregation. Uh, We're going to take an in-depth look at how Paul describes the the spiritual character of the Thessalonians in the first four verses. And in order to do that, or just before that, um, I I want to recall some of the spiritual descriptions that Paul gives of this congregation in 1st Thessalonians. Uh, So in, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said that these believers in Thessalonica were brothers and sisters in the faith. They were chosen and loved by God. That they were those to whom the gospel had come. They had become imitators of Paul, and more importantly, of the Lord Jesus. They received the word, that's the gospel, in much affliction, but with joy of the Holy Spirit. They were an example to the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, They boldly sent the word out, and knowledge of their faith, Paul said, was spreading across the region. By God's grace, they turned from idols to serve the true and living God. And in hope, they were waiting for the Savior to come from heaven and deliver them from the wrath to come. That's how Paul describes this church in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. It's an amazing chapter. We don't have time to do that with... The rest of the way through uh, 1 Thessalonians. But I, I hope you see uh, this point from that description. That this is a church that Paul loved. as is a church that was loved by God. And a church that loved the members of its body. And a church that was in need of love. The first four verses of Second Thessalonians also give a good description of how the Thessalonian congregation was doing spiritually. I, I'm amazed at Paul's description of, of this church, just in these few verses, just how consider Paul describes the love that they have for one another in verse 3 there. Everyone has this love for everyone else in this church. And it's increasing, it's growing. No wonder Paul gives thanks to God for the love that they have for one another. Paul's language even suggests that he is he's duty-bound to give thanks. It would almost be wrong for him not to give thanks to God for the love that they have for one another. This should be encouraging and challenging to each one of us. Interestingly enough, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said that this church, they labored at love. I trust that we recognize that labor is exactly what love requires. Love takes labor. Love sacrifices and gives of itself. It labors to see another grow and prosper and build up. Love looks to the interests of others. How are you doing at laboring at love? It's, It's very easy to love ourselves, but we're called to love God and love others. Pray and ask God to decrease your love of self and increase your love for Him, your love for others. Your love for your brothers and sisters in the church. Let's pray that we would be marked by increasing love. Just as the Thessalonians were. The church in Thessalonica was also a church that was in fellowship with God. And here I just want to meditate for a moment on that little word in, in verse 1. It says something significant about this church. Spiritually speaking, the church of Thessalonica had been brought into being by God the Father, by the power of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Still, there's more. Um, For positionally speaking, the church in Thessalonica is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul means here is that they are in fellowship with God, or better yet, in union with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase, in Christ, is, is one of Paul's favorite phrases to use. And here we're seeing a variation of that favorite phrase. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 3, Paul tells us that Christians, as Christians our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And in, Jesus told us in John chapter 15 verse 4 that we're to abide in Him. When we place our faith in Jesus, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. In other words, when we place our faith in Jesus, we receive all of the credit and benefits of Jesus' redemptive work. And that is because our faith brings us into union with Jesus Christ. We are grafted into the vine. We remain in the vine. We are given life and draw life from Jesus Christ from start to finish. This church, the church in Thessalonica, and our congregation are in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And since we are in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also in fellowship with God. This is intimately related to what Paul says about grace and peace there. You'll notice in verse 2. Paul's statement of grace and peace to the Thessalonian church in verse 2 may be kind of a wish. Uh, It it might be a statement of fact or even a prayer. It can be used kind of in all those ways. My guess is it's actually all three. God's grace and peace have come to them. God's grace and peace is sustaining them. And God's grace and peace will continue to sustain them in the midst of these persecutions and afflictions they're facing. God's grace is His unmerited favor, undeserved favor towards sinners. And peace is the cessation of war and conflict with God. The reality is is that grace and peace can only come from God, our Father. And they do come from God. And they go out to those who are in fellowship with God. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower or believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, you might think that what I just said is strange, perhaps even absurd. Do you think it's strange or absurd that people can be out of fellowship with God or that people can actually be at war with God? Do you think it's strange that... There are sinners in this world. As strange or as absurd as it might sound, it's true. The, the Bible tells us the hard truth when it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The truth is, is that we're liars and thieves. We're idol worshippers and mental adulterers. We commit murder in our hearts and we're dishonest with what God has given us. We're, we're, we're discontent. We do all these things, think all these things, because we are at the center of our lives. Just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we've all been made by God. But we've all decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And that's what the Bible calls sin. Sin makes us rebels and enemies against God. brings us into enmity with Him and at war with God. In other words... We're at war and out of fellowship with Him and we need peace with Him and to be brought into fellowship with Him. Because God is holy, just, and good, He cannot let sin go unpunished. And so we all stand in danger of, bringing, uh, of being punished for our sins forever in hell. In other words, we're in danger of getting what we deserve. So we need God to give us what we do not deserve. We need God to be gracious to us. And here is the good news of the Bible. That God extends grace to those who believe in His Son. God makes peace with those who submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He did this by sending His Son Jesus to earth. To live the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God. Jesus never sinned. And yet He died on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that sin deserves. He took the eternal wrath of God. He died, and he was laid in a tomb. But that was not the end. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God the Father's sight. And Jesus now calls all of us to turn from our sin, to believe in Him, and to follow Him as our Lord. He calls us to believe that He lived the life that we have not lived. A life free of sin and filled with good works. He calls us to believe that Jesus died the death that our sins deserve. That He was punished in our place so that we might have peace with God. And He calls us to believe that He was raised from the grave. That He conquered sin and death for us. Friend, I urge you to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ today. It is in and through Jesus Christ that we come to know God as our Father. Jesus is how the Thessalonians came to know God as their Father. It is how they came to know God's grace and peace. And if you want to know more about what it means that you can come to know God's grace and peace, with, and have peace with God, and have God as your Father, then please do find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to have God as your Father and Jesus as your Lord, to be in fellowship with God be in fellowship with the one true God. Which leads us to another thing that we learn about the church in Thessalonica. Paul says that they're part of a spiritual family. Because they are in fellowship with Jesus Christ, they also have God as their Father, verse 1. This is one of the ways in which Christianity is fundamentally different from every other religion in the world. In Christianity, God does not stand far off. He is not a distant deity, but a loving father. What is more, he is a father that loves and so creates a family through adoption. Notice in verse 3 that Paul calls the Thessalonians brothers, or literally brothers and sisters. You might have a little footnote that indicates that there. I wonder how our relationships in the church would change with one another. If we viewed our connections with one another... Through the lens of family. In our culture, we we hear and even make uh, statements like "blood is thicker than water," or "well, well, that's just something you do for family." Uh, these statements are a way to express our our loyalty and commitment to our family. Uh, family members are those you drop everything for, rearrange your schedule and sacrifice for. Family members are those you you serve and love because there's a fundamental connection that you have with one another, and you have a history together. Brothers and sisters, we are a family united by the blood of the eternal Son of God. A blood which I would argue is not only thicker but more effective and life-giving than the blood of your physical family. We have been adopted by our Heavenly Father and we have a history together that reaches back from before the world began. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, said that believers were chosen in Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world. Do, do you think of your fellow church members as family? They are. So, so how how should your life change because of that reality? How should your priorities and loyalties change because of that reality? How, how should your schedule change because of that reality? How should your prayers change because of that reality? We need to embrace this reality of family and live out God's design for us as a church. These verses also teach us that this spiritual family was a church that was full of faith. One of the reasons that Paul gives thanks to God is because of their faith. Paul even says that it is good and right for him to give thanks to God for the faith of the Thessalonian church. Uh, we we should give thanks to God for the faith of our fellow believers the the Thessalonians faith was growing abundantly and this is astounding because as verse 4 makes clear they were facing persecutions and afflictions they were suffering and the reality is, is that Jesus told his disciples that they were going to follow in his footsteps all who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ will suffer in some way following Jesus doesn't remove suffering it sometimes brings it. We don't ask for it, but that's what it means often to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And He gives His people faith to persevere amidst persecutions and afflictions and suffering. You know, we, we often fear suffering for the Lord. So let me encourage you to read read the New Testament and, and look for examples and instances of when suffering is mentioned. And I think that you'll see that where true believers suffer, their faith grows and flourishes. Uh, a number of Christians have, have recently uh, said to me, I'm, I'm afraid of where things are going in our society, uh, and I, I'm afraid that, that Christians are going to, to suffer. And, and I can understand that fear, and I don't think it's necessarily unfounded or unreasonable. However, from the pattern that I see in the Bible, for those who are truly in Christ, suffering will only lead to stronger faith. And, and if there's anything that the church needs right now, it is a stronger faith in God. Again, we, we, don't, we don't need to ask God to suffer, but we don't need to fear suffering either. The Lord will only make His people steadfast in faith through it. Paul, he boasts of the steadfastness in the faith among other churches. Steadfastness is a kind of... Um, it's a kind of remaining in place, even though there's kind of fierce opposition. So you can think of those reporters, those weather reporters who go on camera during the hurricanes, and they're grabbing onto some balcony or some palm tree or something and standing in the wind and trying to stay in place and giving a report. I have no idea why they choose to do that, uh, but they do. Um, but that's what's kind of going on. This is what the church in Thessalonica has done and what Paul is boasting about. They've, they've kept their feet Firmly planted in the faith, trusting God. And even, even though a number of people in their city were after them, persecuting them, tempting them, and telling them that the day of the Lord had passed them by. I wonder if you see why it's important for Paul to actually boast about their steadfastness in the faith and all their persecutions and afflictions that they were enduring. Do you see the actual importance of Paul boasting about these Christians? and their steadfastness. It was important for other churches. It was important for Paul to boast among the churches of God about the Thessalonians' perseverance because it would encourage those local churches to persevere in the midst of their afflictions and persecutions. It's encouraging to hear about our brothers and sisters in Christ persevering in the midst of hardship. It's it's a reminder to us of the faithfulness of God This is part of the reason that we pray for other local churches in our pastoral prayer. It is right for us to give thanks to God for the steadfastness in the faith, for for their steadfastness. It's an encouragement and a reminder to us that God is at work, not just in our congregation, but in churches all around the world. But it was also important for Paul to tell the Thessalonians that he was boasting about them. And this is where I want us to conclude. Why would it be important for Paul to communicate his joy about what the Lord was doing in the lives of the Thessalonians. Why would it be important for him to say that to them? Well, wouldn't this give them a big head? Well, no. No, it wouldn't give them a big head. Paul wasn't puffing them up. He wasn't flattering them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, Paul said, Let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And here, he is boasting in the work that the Lord has done in the lives of the Thessalonians. Indeed, it is right for him to do so. We as Christians should abstain from flattery. But we should give ourselves to pointing out evidence of grace in the lives of our fellow believers. We should look for God's good work in each other's lives and point that out to each other. The Lord is often pleased to use that encouragement to keep growing us in that grace and laboring at that love that others see in us. The Thessalonians needed to be reminded that God has sustained them through their persecutions and afflictions because they needed to continue to remain steadfast in the face of suffering. This encouragement would be part of the means that God would use to encourage them to remain steadfast in the faith. And the same is true for us. Our faith is energized, we're encouraged to persevere. Not when we remember our own strength, but the strength that God has displayed. Through us as a church we want to pray that God our Father would give us a love that is rich and a love that labors you give us a fellowship that is deep a familial connection that is genuine and a faith that endures let's pray for that now let's pray together